This audio was recorded at St. Barnabas Bible School in Larnaca, Cyprus. To find more resources or to find out more about St. Barnabas Bible School, visit our website at www.stbarnabasbibleschool.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity this evening to come and study uh, the truth that you have revealed to us. Lord, we pray that as we uh, think of these things together, that you would shape us more into the image of your Son, uh, that you would lead us in truth and righteousness, uh, that you would help us to leave knowing you and loving you more. Uh, in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, um, I've given you two handouts there. The, the top, I mean, one's barely a handout. It's a little slip of plate paper. That's just a little outline of where we hope to go through the whole course uh, of lessons. Approximately 10 lessons uh, scheduled, which will take us to, oh, I don't know, before Easter, certainly. Um, there's room for shifting an extra one at the end or, or moving things around if we want to cover some stuff in more detail, if we don't get through things as quickly as uh, as we hope. Uh, there's There's a sort of two halves to the series of lessons. Uh, the first half, we're going to cover some theoretical foundations of Christian ethics, um, thinking through ethics in a biblical way. Um, so the first lesson today, I, I hope to look at some competing visions of what it is we're created for as humans and how that impacts what we think of as the good life, the life well lived. Uh, next week, I hope to, if we get there, we may have to extend this lesson into next week. But the second part there is to, to sort of set obedience to God within the dynamics of covenants. Um, covenants being an important uh, sort of personal legal framework within the Bible um, that, that impact what we mean by obeying uh, Jesus. Um, next, we're going to think a little bit about what Jesus means by the greatest commandments. So we know love God and love your neighbour. Um, what, what, hopefully try and unpack what he means by those um, in a way that will guide the rest of our uh, the rest of our studying together, um, as well as to start to think there about the role of the law of God in the life of the believer, um, and then we'll move on to think about how, uh, hopefully, touching a little bit on, on on the role wisdom plays in the Bible uh, and what the task of sort of ethical formation is as believers. So that's the first half of the uh, of the series. And then part two will hopefully get into some actual specific aspects of ethical living according to the Bible. Um, deal with actual ethical questions. Uh, and we'll take a fairly traditional approach to cover that ground systematically. We'll take each of the Ten Commandments one by one and use the Bible's own sort of expositions of what those mean um, and hopefully apply them to uh, situations, a variety of situations that we might face um, today. Um, and try and do that fairly broadly. Um, lots of material to cover. We'll try our best. I hope it's interesting for you. Um, I want to make sure we've got time for questions as well. Um, on that little slip of paper, there is my, my WhatsApp number. If you think of questions bef between lessons, feel free to send me a text uh, and I'll try my best to answer coherently, um, which is not, no guarantee there, but I'll give it a shot. Um, all right, let's get started. Um, <clears throat> I think that, that obedience has become a little bit of a dirty word. Uh, certainly in the world around us, probably in the church as well, amongst Christians. Um, 
Here's, here's something that a few generations ago would have been commonplace, but is now almost entirely disappeared. Um, things like memorizing the Ten Commandments, um, even displaying the Ten Commandments in churches or in public places. Um, in the past, Christian parents would have seen their role as, not, uh, as shaping the moral formation of their children. And a lot of that has, has fallen by the wayside. Obedience has become a bit of a dirty word. And why that is, that's a multifaceted sort of historical question. We won't go too much into that now. It's beyond the scope of this lecture. Um, I, I've heard a couple of phrases uh, very often that I think are symptomatic of that shift in, in thinking. Um, I've heard them a lot. I'm sure you have as well. Phrases like, the Bible is more than just a list of rules. Uh, or, uh, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Um, mm-hmm. Have you heard these phrases? Oh, yes. uh, I've heard these phrases a lot. Uh, particularly in sort of evangelistic settings or um, in moments when we're trying to appear persuasive or, or pleasant or, or sort of casual even. Um, and of course, no, no one wants cold, dead, mechanistic, religious deeds without Jesus at the centre. Uh, uh, these phrases get at something important, don't they? That, that's not what we want. Um, but, but there's a bit of baggage that's sort of tied around the neck of these phrases, uh, sort of un, un, under, as a, a subtext to them. Um, when someone says the Bible is more than just a list of rules, the force of the appeal there is sort of, don't worry, Jesus isn't going to make you change anything about how you live your life. You know, don't worry about that. It's more than just a list of rules. Um, or, or take the, the sort of relationship, not religion phrase again the force of the argument there is well religions have rules they have duties they have commands uh, they have fixed things they have ways to be ways you need to conform yourself to religions have a vision of what is good but don't worry jesus is not like that christianity is not like that this is a relationship it's fluid it's expressive it's relational it's not tied down to oughts or ought nots that's the sort of force of the the argument the sub subtext uh, often um, behind phrases like that. Now, don't worry, Christianity is not going to confront you. Uh, it's not going to shape your life. It's not going to cha- change your life. Um, and so today, uh, we're left often in a position where uh, the Christian faith has no or, or, or a very little diminished uh, image of what the good life is or what the good life is not. But here's the catch. Um, the Bible has commands. It has, it has rules. Um, it has things that bind us. It has things we can't do, things we must do, uh, things we, uh, more, more than that, things we must feel, things we must think. Um, the Bible, and therefore God, clearly has a vision of what the good life is. Um, and obedience is not a dirty word to God. Um, so we're faced with that tension there. Um, oh, it's not really a tension. It, we're faced with the, the, the weakness of these kind of phrases that we throw around. Um, uh, let me read Romans 1, 5. Just uh, as a bit of an illustration of this. Um, Paul, talking about his commission to apostleship, um, says, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul, talking about his commission to apostleship in Jesus' name, what is his commission for? To bring about the obedience of faith in the nations. 
Uh, so obedience is clearly not a dirty word here, a beautiful word. Uh, it, it is the reason Paul has been made an, an apostle to bring about obedience to God in faith. Um, so uh, we, we rightly see, I think, that the Bible is more than just a list of rules, but uh, we see that the list of rules approach is too small a picture for what the Bible is. But we react, funnily enough, by, by making the picture even smaller and removing the commands. Uh, and that's not the right way. Um, we want to make the picture big enough to cover all of what the Bible is. Um, the way to do that is not by removing the commands, removing the ethics, removing the obedience. Um, and uh, so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start by setting the commands, setting the obedience in the bigger picture. Um, by asking the questions, what are we made for? Or why do we exist? Those are those are pretty, pretty substantial questions. We're going to deal with it uh, in about, you know, uh, an hour and a bit. You know, so we'll be all sorted by then. Well, <laughs> obviously, this will be a very broad uh, sketch uh, of what the Bible says about those things and not a really uh, in-depth study. Um, but there we are. We, we do what we've got with the time we've got. Um, the question of ethics is essentially a question of what is a good life. Um, when all is said and done, and at the end of the day, what would it mean to have lived this life well or not? That's the, that's the question of ethics. And why we exist in the first place, the reason for our existence, what we're here to do, has a fundamental role to play in answering that question. It's, it's massively important. Um, Christianity has a clear answer to that question uh, of what the good life is and what we exist for. It's written throughout the whole Bible. Um, but Christianity's vision of the good life is not the only vision of the good life that's there around us today that we'll, that we'll come across. So what I want to start by doing uh, is looking at some of those competing visions of what the good life is that we're likely to come across in the wild, let's say, out there in the world, um, and, and then move on to what the true picture of the good life is, what the true reason for our existence is, um, according to the Bible. Again, brief sketches, nothing too in detail. So here we go. Um, we're going to look at three unbelieving errors, um, key errors for the world that we live in right now. Um, three ways of imagining the world and uh, why we exist within it that depart from the Bible's picture, the Bible's story, uh, and then sort of think about how that might affect what people view the good life to be. Um, obviously, no one is totally animated by any one of these ideas. Humans are always more than just ideas, uh, and we praise the Lord constantly that he doesn't let us go to the logical ends of our ideas. Um, we're going to draw some of what those logical ends are, but you're not likely to meet anyone who goes all the way with any of these ideas. Um, thankfully, God spares us that in his mercy. Um, in many, many ways. But ideas do have consequences. Um, heads reflect hearts, uh, and our hearts always work into our fingertips as well, work our way out, work their way out. Um, so these, these ideas do have consequences, as we'll see. Um, and I'm also not going to present these in their sort of high academic forms, um, supported by books, 
philosophical treatise in their sophisticated form, but, but rather how they would appear in the imagination of the general culture around. So someone you're meeting on the street or at work, how these things might play out in their, their normal thinking. Right, the first of these that we're going to look at, we're going to think a little bit about Darwinian evolution and ask the question, how would a Darwinian evolutionist say, uh, why would they say we exist? Actually, the first question there is, how would they say we exist? Because it's really important here. Um, all visions of existence, all imaginations of the world have uh, a creation story. Um, and, and really around us, Charles Darwin is the great sort of origin mythologist of our day. Uh, evolution by natural selection is the most prevalent creation myth around us at the moment. Um, now, no matter what people say, it is a myth. Um, it is, a, it is a, a selective and creative interpretation of a subset of data um, that is there to support pre-existing beliefs uh, about the world. It's really important to, to not miss that. Um, Darwin did not come along and uh, discover the idea of blind evolution out of nowhere, as if no one had ever thought of it before. It was a popular idea at the time that he was doing his work, uh, and uh, Darwin only really claimed to have found a sort of mechanism that they could hang their philosophy on that was already in the water. Um, so <clears throat> he, he really is a, a mythologist, really, um, inventing, inventing uh, interpreting some data in support of a pre-existing belief that he had. Um, the idea that there is... Uh, the material world is all there is, um, that there is nothing uh, nothing that transcends uh, what we can see with our eyes, what we can sense with our senses, um, the sort of the nothing above us, only sky sort of philosophy that was there for a long time. Charles Darwin came along with the, perhaps the first or one of the, one of the early coherent stories of what you saw around that you could hang that on. Just a theory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would say it's actually less than a theory. It's, it's a story. It's, it's a story. And this is, the, this is um, I think C.S. Lewis probably makes this point as well, quite in his work, that um, the, the, the Darwinian evolution story by natural selection is, is the myth. It is the, it's the creation myth of the modernist way of viewing the world. Um, so in this way of thinking, history comes from nowhere, meaningful it's going nowhere meaningful uh, there's no judge there's no lawgiver there's no standard even there's not even really any meaningful differentiation between different things um, the story is from mush you were created and to mush you will return and really all you are is a bit of lumpy sort of mush now and, and there's no way to, to understand what you are um, you just are so why do you exist in this view of the world no reason. You just do. There you go. Aren't you lucky or unlucky or I don't know? Doesn't. How do we interpret that? We can't. Um, so in this vision of, of existence, of why do you exist? What's the vision of the good life? Um, the vision of the good life followed to its end is there is no such thing as the good life. There's no such thing as ethics. Uh, where on earth would right and wrong come from? Um, how would you work it out? You could maybe scrape something together, just about. Tends to be what helps you survive longer, what will help your children survive. 
or not even that, what would help you have children. Um, you could scrape something together, passing on genes, but it's sort of a vision of the good life that's about as flimsy as a little hut made of sticks. A little breeze will blow it over. Um, it, can't, it can't stand up to much. Um, really, the question that you should ask someone who is saying, there is no meaning, this is the story of life, is, okay, well, why should... Fine, I care about my survival. Why should I care about yours? Why do you why do you, why do you why do you care about mine? You know, why should we care? I don't care. Why should I even really care about my kids? I might care that I've passed on, and I guess I want them to survive to have their own. If if the selfish gene is the sort of the the way the world is, that is about as much as you can scratch together. I care about surviving long enough to have kids. Why should I care about you doing that? It's it's just not that. Um, no one really listens to Richard Dawkins anymore. Um, he, I think, has proven himself recently to be a bit of a, a bit of a philosophical sort of pipsqueak. Really, he was a rhetorical uh, powerhouse for a short time, but he's fallen by the wayside. But to his credit, he did recognise this fact about his mythology. Um, sometimes he would say things as, "This is a quote from the Selfish Sheen." Much as we might wish to believe otherwise, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. Um, notice there, he's summoned the sort of biggest ethical vision that he can, and it's a bit of a mushy sentimentality, universal love, uh, welfare generally, and his Darwinian evolution can't even support that. You know, even that is not sustainable. Uh, in this view of the world, there is no such thing as the good life. Uh, you weren't created for anything. There's no such thing as living well. No such thing as living poorly. There is no standard. You just die. And whatever, whatever you find that you want to do, why not do it? Um, I'm, I'm sure you've uh, come across some of these ideas before. Um, if you want further reading... Uh, just read anything by C.S. Lewis, really. First half of Mere Christianity takes this apart even before Dawkins is around, long time before Dawkins was around doing his thing. Uh, and also The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis as well takes this apart pretty, pretty easily. It's not hard to, um, because no one actually lives like this. They can't. You can't live like this. Um, but all the same, it's the sort of creation myth that, that people keep in their back pockets uh, to, just to draw out when they want to do something that's particularly shoddy. Um, that's what it's useful for. Uh, but as Lewis points out, it's really not a, it's not a useful one to have in your back pocket when someone does something bad against you. <laughs> it, it doesn't come in handy there. Only when you want to do something uh, a bit, uh, bit seedy. Um, but uh, as I said, you're not likely to find pure Darwinians out in the wild. It just doesn't work. It's not possible to live like that. Um, instead, what people need to do is they need to use this creation myth to sort of flatten the ground and then build other visions of what the good life is on top of it. So you can come in with this story uh, and its philosophical assumptions, flatten the ground, and then you can start trying to build something on other premises. Um, but, but what this conveniently does is remove that objective standard. It conveniently comes along and says, oh, there's nothing outside of humanity, nothing outside of you that can tell you what is good and what is not. 
make it up as you see fit. Um, so it flattens the ground, but not much more than that. Um, it's a sort of a, it uses a crowbar to remove the big, big obstacle of objective external standards. Um, someone outside of you that sets that that vision of what the good life is. Um, the, the next two visions of the good life that you're going to find out there. Um, these are visions of the good life that are built on that, that, that cleared ground, that foundation myth of Darwinian evolution. So the first thing we're going to look at, um, the first of these two, is, is expressive individualism. I don't know if you've heard of that, heard that phrase mm -hmm. around? Mm -hmm. No? Um, I mean, you'll recognise the philosophy yes. and the attitude, even if you don't recognise the term. But the Western atomistic... It's a lot I of that. Yeah. Words. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> expressive individualism uh, basically answers the question: Why do I exist? Uh, I exist to express my true self. <laughs> That's why I exist. Sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That's me. Why do I exist for me? <laughs> uh, and remember, that, remember that creation myth that's cleared the ground for this. Uh, there's no external standard or truth. Um, no one can tell me what me is. Um, when I ask the question who I am so that I may live it out, I need to work that out from within myself. Yeah. Um, which almost always turns out to be, what do I want? What feels good to me? Mm -hmm. What do I desire? Um, maybe informed by some um, sort of semi-platitudes that feel nice, but basically what it comes down to is what do I want? What feels good to me? What do I desire? Um, and so what is the good life in this way of viewing the world? Uh, the good life, I will have lived the good life if I have been able to express my true self. If I've been true to me, if I've been myself, then I will have lived the good life. Um, this is essentially modern Disney film ethics. Um, and uh, I mean, these are my made up statistics so don't quote me on them but I reckon this is approximately 87.9% of all Instagram posts um, very very exciting well yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there's space for some good stuff on Instagram happening there I'm being a bit generous perhaps but it's a large proportion of Instagram is be yourself express yourself uh, let no one tell you not to um what expressive individualism does is it sanctifies all of your desires. Um, it sanctifies what you call your personality, what you call your preferences. Um, and the good life is the one that is unconstrained by all of those meanies out there who want to stop you from being you. Um, in many ways, it's like the sort of toddler temper tantrum of, of identity philosophies. Uh, this is the I will have jelly and ice cream and bounce on the trampoline all the time simply because I want to and I will not take no for an answer and it doesn't matter if I vomit at the end of it. Um, this is I just want to be me and no one can say no. Um, so this scheme of the good life is incredibly individualistic. Um, what is true for you doesn't have to be true for me. What is good for you doesn't have to be good for me. Uh, there's no external standard, remember. Everything good and true has to come from me working it out by myself, from within, based on the limited data that I have available to me. Um, as long as I get to be happy and I get to be me, I've lived the good life. That's expressive individualism. Um, 
So it, it really is a, a scheme that lacks any coherent moral vision. Uh, and again, it can't withstand basic pressure put on it. But it is powerfully persuasive. Um, powerfully persuasive because really what it does is it lets our desires, the good, the bad and the ugly, run wherever they want and that at its heart is it's just sin. It provides cover for us to let our sin run wild. Um, there's a, I think a pretty important side note here. Um, we, even as Christians who know that this is not good, we swim in a sea that is filled with it. Mm-hmm. And, and so we are bound to have got wet from it. Mm. Um, this thinking has massively infiltrate, infiltrated the church. Uh, it is the vision of the good life that is around us. And so it, it is in, it's in there. Even Christians have, have, have fallen to this to some extent. And in fact, one of the main contentions of this whole series of classes is that we Christians will need to get away from that poison chalice and instead embrace God's objective standards standard outside of ourselves of what is good, true and beautiful. Um, and a fundamental basic of the Christian faith is that if we don't feel like God and his character and his standards express who I really am, then who I feel I am is what needs to change and conform to the image of Christ, and be conformed to the image of Christ. Um, and the task is not for me to try and change God's standards to who I want to be. Um, so that's expressive individualism I exist to express who I am and I'll have lived a good life if I get to do that alright the third of these uh, competing visions of what is good um, is this sort of idea of humanist progress expressive individualism it's in the name is incredibly individualistic but it's impossible for any of us to ignore that we are not the only humans in the world. And so some version of corporate um, morality needs to exist. There needs to be a vision for humankind as a whole. And Darwinian origin myth has cleared the ground for such a vision of, of, of humanist progress. Uh, This is the idea that we humans are progressing somewhere and we're getting better somehow and we all need to get on board with that. That's why I exist. I exist to to help the human race progress to the next stage of its existence. And remember again that the key tenet of the origin myth, there's no God above us, there's no external standard. There's no externally divine, de- defined objective or goal. We are the ones who get to make it up. We're the ones who get to decide. Uh, the goal must come from within humanity or within the, cre- within the material world, at least, if not from within humanity. Um, we get to make it up. Well, not we. Not, not you and I, really. Um, the human race, which essentially boils down to the people who've got the raw power to make everyone else do what they want, gets to make it up. Um, and there have been various versions of this over the last few hundred years. Um, different types of human progress that, 
that have been held up as the vision of the good life that you can lay down your life for. Um, a biological view of progress. I mean, this is this is really the ethical vision that the the, the pure Darwinian evolutionists will go to, um, because they need to have something. Uh, this is this is Darwin's aim really was to push humankind towards the next biological evolution. Uh, we're going to get better and better by biological mechanisms. Um, that, interestingly, this is why Darwinists have historically been very keen on eugenics. Um, the, the, the purposeful pursuit of good genes um, uh, and really whenever you see eugenics appearing over the history of the 20th century there is vicious Darwinist philosophy behind it um, so there's the biological view of human progress that you can get on board with if you want uh, there's the big one, uh, one of the big ones, an economic view of, of human progress. This is this is Marx. This is the res relentless pursuit of progress towards equal distribution of economic power throughout mankind. Um, this is a uh, we are progressing to a point where everyone equally shares the wealth. Um, but it, it's a similar. It works in a similar mechanism to that biological. It's the pursuit of human progress, progress defined by, by humanity, by the material world, by this fixed, closed system. Um, there is the story of, uh, of human progress, um, a sort of strength and will human progress. This is, this is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, who is saying things like humanity must progress towards the creation of the superman, the one who has the strength to simply form reality according to what he wants it to be. And that's what we must aim towards as a human race. Um, notice there, it's forming reality from within, from us, from down below, from here. No objective standard, it's us as humankind. We must power forward and establish our own will and form reality and progress to the stage when we have the power to do that. And then woven through all of these, strangely, despite the dedication to that evolutionary myth, sort of paradoxically, there has always been a sense of mystical human progress. Um, sometimes uh, a view of human... Uh, a sort of, there's the will of the universe pushing us forward. Sometimes, literally... Uh, streams of occult practices, uh, people trying to commune with something other in order to gain the next step of knowledge that will ascend us into the new type of human existence. Uh, it's remarkable. You look through um, the history of the 20th century, you look through the history of, of, of Nazi Germany, the occult was huge. The eugenics movement in early 20th century, leading up to the Second World War, the occult communing with the demonic was crucial to, uh, in an attempt to gain an insight, some sort of spiritual ascension that will take humanity on this next step of continual progress. Because that is why we exist. That is what we exist for. That is what the good life is, corporately. Um, so, 
what is the good life for the individual in this sort of scheme of things? Because it's, it's easy to see perhaps whether, what, what the idea of what is good is for humanity as a whole. Uh, it's progress. But for the individual in this kind of scheme, this way of thinking, the good life is toe the line, get on the right side of history, or face the consequences. Um, the good life for the corporate body is gather and centralise power into one person or a small group of people who can then shape reality to progress it. But for the individual, the good life in this scheme is get on the programme, get on the same page as the rest of us or we'll make you. Um, uh, yeah, There's, I mean, this is what, you've see, what you see through all of the uh, sort of communist revolutions, nationalist and communist revolutions through through the 19th century into the 20th century, you see exactly this. The view of the good life corporately is progress, humanist progress, and the view of the good life for the individual is get in line, um, get on board. Um, so the key, the key in all of these is, is that is that commitment to a standard that is defined from within humanity, from within us. So within me, for expressive individualism, or from humanity as a whole, uh, in this humanist progress um, view of things. Um, I say that all of these, to some extent, believe that Darwinian creation myth, but in reality, that myth, that myth exists there to provide cover. Um, a cover of legitimacy for these philosophies. Um, these, yeah, so th those are the ideas of why you exist that you might come across out there. Um, you exist for nothing in particular. You exist to express your true self or you exist to further some man-defined version of human progress. Those are the big three that you probably find. Uh, and there's, there's various permutations of those and combinations of them and they mix together and uh, there's really there's a multitude of ways that humans can depart from and twist biblical truth um, too many to go into detail now um, but here's the main takeaway really all of these ideas purposely leave out God in order to destroy the idea that there is that objective standard objective morality outside of us uh, to leave out any idea that we will be held to something at the end of the day some of the schemes here are simple some of them are really complicated most of them are actually a, a, an elaborate mess when you pull down into them um, but they're all just running cover for that ancient desire really to define what is good and evil for ourselves uh, and to ignore what God says about those things it's, it's, it's just cover for the lie in the Garden of Eden um, did God really say that that was good he just wants you to not define what it is yourself because you could take that power and do it for yourself. All right, I, I realise we've covered quite a lot in quite a short period of time. Yeah. Any questions? Uh, anything that's unclear? Anything you want to uh, talk about a little bit further? My only question will be with Darwinian evolution. Mm -hmm. And I certainly agree with how... Um, let's say 
speciation through natural selection has been interpreted um, in the ways that you've described. Um, but I'm, I'm not that familiar, familiar on Darwin himself, what his beliefs and objects, how, how he would have answered these questions. Yeah, um, I mean, he wrote a pretty, pretty uh, on-the-nose book about the development of human evolution in the sort of pursuing the end of evolving better and better and leaving behind those races that seem to be less pure, less advanced. So he, he's tied into that philosophical commitment to human progress through biological means. Um, and he certainly saw natural selection as providing the mechanism that uh, providing the mechanism that everyone had been looking for to make that actually intellectually feasible. Um, there, there were other people looking uh, at the time, people like um, Lamarck was looking mm. for, a, for a, a method of, of biological evolution. Darwin found, found, found one that seemed feasible. And to, to a certain extent, it, it is feasible because um, he observed actual genetic variations in different populations of, of, of Finch in particular. Um, but it's clear uh, from Darwin's writings that he was not approaching that as a objective objective I'm just going to look at the data here um, he, he, he had bought into um, these this philosophical modernism that, that was not not new by his time you know we start talking starting with Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the in the 18th century leading through the French Revolution uh, leading on through the, the 19th century and and that the century of, of modernist revolutions and things so uh, he is not existing in a vacuum looking at mm -hmm. um, blind data, interpreting it in a, in a purely uh, unbiased way. Um, yeah. I certainly see that yeah. some of oh, these things you. that you've said, and obviously I've subscribed to them, happen, but it's the attitude towards them or the belief in them that makes it wrong. Without human intervention, Weaker things do not survive as well as stronger things do, which is natural selection. But to say that that is why we exist mm -hmm. makes it wrong. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there's also, it is, it is by science's own ruling paradigm, I need to observe it to believe it. It is impossible to establish how much genetic change has actually happened through environmental pressure. Yes, I don't say that it's going to be the genetic, but the sort of survival of the fittest attitude is seen, seems to be in all aspects of living creatures, not just people. Even plants, the stronger, the pioneer plants will take over. Certainly. Mm. Certainly. So we see it happening, uh -huh. but that doesn't have to mean that's the reason for our existence. It, it doesn't, and, and I would say one step, one, one step further, natural selection is clearly 
uh, I say natural selection, but uh, selection pressure from an environment is clearly an aspect of genetic distribution of various things within different populations of groups of species. Yeah, yeah. Small groups of species, perhaps. Um, that is clearly a thing. But does it have any empirically provable explanatory power when it comes to large differences in different kinds of creature? And really, we can't observe that because we don't have... You know, they claim it takes millions of years. None of us live for that long to measure it. What we have is the interpretation of data that we can, of, of, of information, geological and otherwise, that we can't um, experiment on, we can't repeat, we can't run experiments. So it is, it, this is why this is not a, it is not a scientifically devised theory in many ways. It is a um, imaginatively devised theory. It is about the creative interpretation of things in accordance with philosophical paradigms that already exist already held before you go to look at that physical data. And, and um, there are things that evolutionary biologists know that they take on faith. So I mean, I have a, so my, my undergrad is in zoology. Um, I had a lecturer, I was sat in the lecture and he said, at the moment, Darwinian evolution has no way of explaining any form of altruism or group behavior. Mm -hmm. But he said, but don't worry, evolution will find a way to explain it. This is a faith commitment. This is a, a, this is a, a philosophical, philosophical commitment before it is a pure reading of the data. Um, I had another lecturer who said to me, uh, said to the class, uh, right, let's look at the key studies that are, form our backbone of understanding of, of Darwinian evolution by natural selection. And he went through several of them and said, um, or he went through at least one of the keystone, the real keystone studies, and said, this was methodologically flawed. The method here was all over the shop. But don't worry, its findings were correct. Which is fundamentally against the scientific method of, of gathering knowledge on its own terms. So that, this, is, this is some of the reasons why I say the commitment to Darwinian evolution is a creation myth, a selective and creative interpretation of data that's there. It doesn't take into account all the data. It, uh, it comes at the data with an already decided view of what the world is and, and, how, and what our place is within it, and then um, interprets the data based on that. No, no less so than any other of our views of, of who we are and, and, and what we're here for. So this claim of uh, scientific neutrality, of unbiased, no faith commitments, we're just looking at the facts. It, it's just simply not true. Um, yeah. John Lennox calls scientism the belief that science can actually, or the presupposition that science can actually if it can't, ultimately can answer all of these questions, uh -huh. which is what you're getting from your, from your lecturers, wasn't it? Mm. We can't explain this, but science but eventually... Science will find a way. Yeah. 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 We can which trust science. Yes. We can trust science to find a way. Um, yeah. Thank you. Any other questions at this point? 
Um, all reasonably clear. So far so, so far, so so far, so good. All right. Okay. Well, we'll move on now to something a little bit closer to home. Uh, I imagine that none of us hold to any of these views, at least purely. I'm sure we're touched by some of them, but none of us would say, "Yeah, I'm an expressive individualist," <laughs> and you know, I love it. I'm living for myself. Okay. No. No, because God's in me. I'm a cryptic Nazi. You're a cryptic Nazi. Uh, you've got you know deep associations with the occult, and you're you're looking for uh, for the Ubermensch. Yeah. Um, right. So perhaps an area a little bit closer to home. Um, remember, we're still asking the question: What am I here for? What does that mean for the good life? Here's a here's an error, a believing error. And let's be clear here: This is less a radical error. But it is actually one that affects us, I think, a, a more, more clearly, more, more day-to-day. Um, and so this is the view that I'm calling the get-clean-and-get-out view of existence. <laughs> All right. This is the, this is the view of uh, I exist to have my sins forgiven and yep. then go to heaven when I die. Yep. Um, and that is the sum total of my existence. Why do I exist? I exist to be forgiven. And I've not thought about it any more than that. Uh, and then I exist to go to heaven when I die. So the good life here is no more than being forgiven and then sticking out of trouble until I die and get there. Yep. Uh, so uh, familiar with this view, seen it around? Oh, yes. oh yeah, okay. Oh, yes. Evangelicalism. It's, it's rampant. It's really rampant. Um, now, uh, let's start with some positives of this, of this view. There are abundant positives of this view. The key one being that most of the propositions that make it up are actually true. Okay? I have sins. I need them to be forgiven. Um, through the gospel, Christ offers forgiveness of those sins. And if I've placed my faith in Christ, my soul will go to heaven when I die. All of that is true. So all of the main sort of steps there, the big building blocks, are, are true. Gloriously so. Amen. Amen. May these truths ever be acknowledged, undiminished uh, in, in their glory and in clarity. But there are big issues with this view. Not, not necessarily errors as such, but it is the Bible cut short. Um, both at the beginning and at the end. It's truncated. It's like a small bit of the story. Um, So it's as if the story really starts at Genesis 3. The first thing that happens is sin, not creation and not God's purpose with creation. Um, And it's as if the story is only concerned with you and me and where we go when we die. Um, So the only end of the story is a sort of you and me end. Uh, no goal beyond us. We get to go to heaven. It's great. It's individual. It's very individualistic. Yeah. Um, it is a. It's, it's a. It's a truncating, a shortening. It's a trimming of the Bible story and the gospel message uh, that adds up really to an unhelpful error when we're talking about what is the good life. Um, so some some practical results of of the get clean and get out view of of things. Um, Really, it has no positive vision of what we're here for and what we're to do with our lives. It's, it's got a negative vision. Uh, right. Negative being, uh, it's got something you should avoid that's good, but it doesn't have a positive vision of something you should pursue. Um, it's a keep your nose clean. Um, it has a poor view of, uh, of the meaning of history, um, a poor view of what Christ is achieving in history. Um, a lack of concern for the things that happen uh, 
in history, really. Uh, uh, it has a, a, a generally has a poor view of creation around us, in sort of a, a, a favour of a, a fluffy, ethereal idea of what spiritual is. Um, it, it has tendencies to something that we call Gnosticism yes. um, or, or, or Docetism, mm -hmm. um, the idea that what is created is bad intrinsically and the aim is to get out, to get gone, you know, stop being touched by all this yucky stuff. Um, its idea of what is spiritual is something that lifts off from the created world and sort of floats away again, never to be touched, mm -hmm. by, touched by anything. Um, and it is, as we've said, it is individualistic. Um, in this view, the goal of the Christian life, the good life, if lived well, is that you get to the end and you get to escape. Um, well, yes, yeah, or, you know, you've got to the chopper in time and, and you've been lifted out of, of the, the, uh, the invading hordes. Um, the idea of the good life in this view never touches down on earth. It's only, it's only in your hearts, which we take to mean only in our minds and our feelings. Um, the idea of the heart in the Bible is rich and full of things and gloriously lots of things happen in our hearts. But when we say this is true in our hearts, we often mean this affects my feelings and it affects my ideas and not much more than that. But minds... So this is what happens to expressive individualism put into the church? It's, it's got a link, yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly it's linked. It, it, it's, it's... Sounds almost exactly <laughs> Well, thankfully, it's, you know, it's got, an, it's got an objective external standard. Yes. Um, so it's not, um, yeah, it's not quite in the ditch. Uh, it doesn't look forward to the renewal of all things. It doesn't look forward to the renewal. It doesn't really care about what you're doing now. Um, and it's individualistic. It's individualistic. It doesn't care about the church, really. Uh, it doesn't care about uh, the impact of Christianity on society more largely. Um, it doesn't care about these things. Um, so that's that's the the believing error there. Uh, any questions on that? I, I, it seems like you're all fairly familiar with this. Um, no big surprises there. I think we've asked our questions through our interruptions. Actually, so <laughs> no. Feel free to interrupt. It's good to have the interruptions because it shapes where we go. Um, all right, let's, let, that's enough of the errors, I think. We've got half an hour left. Uh, let's look more positively. Mm. Let's look at something the Bible does teach us is good and what it does say about why we exist. So why does the Bible say we uh, were created? I'm going to read Genesis, some bits of Genesis here. Um, Genesis 1, 26 to 29. <clears throat> Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. That you have every tree with the seed in its fruit, you shall have them uh, 
for food. Uh, and then let me read uh, chapter 2, verse 15 as well. Um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. All right. Um, now, in looking at the Bible's view of why we exist and uh, what the good life is, we necessarily, in this, le- this session, have to be sketchy. It's, it's, I mean, it's the whole Bible, I mean, we can't cover it all uh, in this. And hopefully as we go through this course, that is what we're trying to answer. What does the good life look like um, in the biblical vision of things? Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to necessarily shorthand some stuff um, and not reference literally everything, um, but I can find references for you if you want something in particular, and then uh, I can send that to you and we can, we can talk about that um, at another time. Um, there is... An idea in Reformed Christianity, which is where I'm coming from, of the threefold office, particularly of Christ, but also of humanity generally. And this is the idea that humans were created to be prophets, priests, and kings of creation. Prophets, priests, and kings of creation. And that's sort of. So Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king, um, but that reflects a pattern established in creation so that's that's the idea it's a it's a sort of helpful rubric to get our head around what is happening the purpose of creation of man here what's happening um so just a brief sketch of these things um a priest uh, we see that in the language of garden keep uh to work it to, so work it and keep it um it's it's sort of it's not quite just working it's it's guarding and keeping it um the, that is language that is used of uh, priests in their temple worship throughout the Bible. So really what we have there is priestly language. And that fits with the bigger picture of, of the Garden of Eden looking like the temple, or rather the temple mm. looking like the Garden of Eden, and the land of Canaan looking like the temple, looking like the Garden of Eden, and where we're heading in the end, looking like a garden in a city, looking like a temple, looking like... It. So that's, that's where we're at. The, the, the language there that Adam is given in the garden is to basically be a priest of it. Um, and the role of priest in the Bible, obviously there's the role of priest that comes after sin, which is to offer up sacrifices for the uh, cleansing of sin. But, but it's a bigger role than that. Really, the, the role of priest is to offer offer things up to the Lord um, in order to make them holy to him. Um, The role of priest is to take things, sanctify them, use them for their proper uses in thankfulness to the Lord. So that, that is the sort of, that is priestly work here. So Adam is to go into the garden, find the things that God has put there and find their proper uses and offer them up as holy to the Lord. Um, so that is, that is uh, his priestly work. Um, he's also a king. He's to take dominion and to rule on behalf of God. Uh, so we see that word take dominion, take dominion several times. That is God uh, consecrating and commanding Adam to be his vice Vice-gerent, his, his, uh, his, 
his yeah his his image bearer his um, his king on his behalf in the world. So he is to uh, order things, to bring forth their potential, to rule and order according to the overlordship of God. So not according to his own will, but according to the overlordship of, uh, of, the, of the, the great king, God. Uh, so that is what he's uh, to do, to rule in God's wisdom, to rule and to sub-create after, uh, after God's image, um, and to spread out throughout the whole world doing that. Uh, he is also to be a, a prophet. He is to bring the word of God to bear on creation. And we see that actually, I think, in, in relief more clearly uh, in, in Genesis 3. Um, so what, what does the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say? And what should Adam have done? He said, yes, God really said. He is to bring the word of God to bear on the situation. Um, and that's what the role of, pro- of the prophet is in the Bible. The one who brings the word of God to bear on situations. Uh, and, to, and to bring things under that, that, that authority. Now, obviously, these roles all intermingle. They're not mm. clearly always clearly defined at various points in the history in the bible they are fairly clearly defined but then they're brought together in christ and then distributed out again so it's not that um these things don't touch each other but that's a sort of helpful rubric to understand the parts of adam's purpose as he's created so prophet priest and a king um and how adam's offspring are created after him Uh, so really to sum up the aim of uh, human existence in the Bible is to reflect the glory of God in all of creation uh, to do the stuff that delights God in every part of creation and to do the stuff that shows the character of God everywhere as the image of God so that's that's the, the purpose of the existence to reflect God's glory to reflect his character uh, to show the universe, whoever it is that's watching, what God is like and how glorious he is. Um, and that's the basic outline of the purpose of humanity. And it holds throughout the Bible story. So uh, as we've just seen in the beginning, that image and the pattern and the purpose is established there. In the fall, we see it marred, we see it broken. Uh, we, see, we see fulfilling that task made harder with a curse on the ground, um, with a uh, curse on childbirth, uh, with work being made difficult, with the entrance of sin, death. But crucially, that, that purpose of existence is not removed entirely. And we know that because we see it reaffirmed in Genesis 8, Genesis 9. After the flood, Noah, living in a fallen world, is given that same command be fruitful and multiply take dominion um, we see it in the promise to abraham his family is going to be the start of the restoration of that purpose his family are taught the ways of god through which god would bring blessing to all the families of the earth and then we see it with moses and the giving of the law israel is to be a kingdom of priests moses is a prophet They're given the law to apply the word of God to all situations. 
They're given a, a, a new Eden to work and to keep, to take dominion over. Canaan is like the garden. And then in the middle of that, they're given a, a temple, which is like the garden. Uh, we see that throughout the Old Testament. And then we see it with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is very clearly called the second Adam in Scripture. Mm. Uh, and it is no coincidence that he is resurrected in a garden on the first day of a new week. Um, he, is, he is Adam again. It's no mistake that he is, no coincidence that he's mistaken for a gardener. You know, these, these are things that John has written into, into his, his account there. You know, and you see it with the Gospel of John. John starts with, on this day, on this day. He's talking about the renewal and the perfection of this creation story and you see it there I, I mean um, Jesus is resurrected in a garden he is mistaken for a gardener uh, he is um, he leaves his his priestly death clothes on an altar on that bench and there are angels on either end this is temple garden imagery that's what we've got there Ad, uh, Jesus is the new Adam restoring this image on the first day of a new week. He is the second Adam. Um, and then Jesus says, go into the world to his disciples, go into the world teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. It doesn't just stop with Jesus. It's, not just, it's fulfilled in him and he's the only one now who has this task. He gives that task to his people. To go out into the world, um, it is the restoration of this image and purpose, the perfection of it. Um, one of the things that is, is promised through the, throughout the prophets of the Old Testament is this image of living water uh, flowing from the temple out into the world to make the world fruitful again, to, to, to undo the curse. Um, to take away the salt water to cleanse it to undo the curse um, living water would flow from the temple and then Jesus comes and says I am the temple Jesus comes and says I have living water Jesus comes and says I will give my living water to all of my people who trust in me and from them will it well up and flow out and he's talking about the spirit and then he dies, resurrects, ascends, and pours out his spirit on his people to go and do this. Um, to send them out to claim the crown rights of the king in all the nations. To go and, uh, to go and live out this purpose. To be his image bearers in the world. The, the, the image bearers of the true uh, second Adam. The, 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 the one who um, fulfills all of these patterns and now... Uh, makes those patterns fulfilled in his people um, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he sends them out with a command, essentially be fruitful and multiply, make disciples of the nations, teach them to, teach them to come under the word of God, fill the earth with the image of the glory of God, um, shine forth the light of, of the beauty of God's character, of his holiness throughout the world. So Jesus has come not only to overturn Genesis 3, but also to fulfill Genesis 1 and 2. Um, 
We've got to remember that. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the promise, the great promise of a day of great harvest in the end. Uh, a day when all of this is done perfectly, when it's done fully and totally, when God's people are resurrected, when all of those seeds that they've planted in sorrow during the ages of shadow and, and, and battle rise to a full harvest, rise in joy. Um, and then to go on doing this more fully for eternity. Eternity, by the way, which is the amount of time needed to properly reflect the, pre- reflect the glory of an infinite God. Um, you can't do that in a short time. Yeah. Uh, you can't even do it with eternity. Yeah. Um, but any time less than that, any time less than that is entirely inappropriate for reflecting the glory of an infinite God. So in this biblical picture, what is the good life? The good life for us is to reflect in our part of creation the glory of God by doing all the stuff that he gives to us to do in a way that delights him and shows his character. What effect does that then have on on our ethics? Um, It means that we, the good life, we seeking to live the good life, live it as those who are firstly redeemed from sin, um, which is the bit that we're all familiar with, I think. Um, We're redeemed from the power and the penalty, the presence of sin. Um, but we're also redeemed for something. And that's the crucial thing that we need to remember. We are redeemed not just from sin, we're redeemed for something. We're redeemed for a positive vision of what is good. Redeemed from sin, redeemed for holy living. Redeemed for showing the righteousness and the holiness, the character of God in the world. Uh, that's what we've been redeemed for. We've been, re- we've been renewed and perfected so that we can be citizens of the kingdom of God, so that we can actually be holy priests in every corner, lifting up the things that we find to their proper use in holiness, uh, so that we can be holy prophets applying the word of God to every situation, so that we can be holy kings ordering whatever little realm given to us in accordance with the will of the king of kings, the one on the throne of the kingdom of God. We've not just been redeemed from something, we've been redeemed for something. That is, to live as part of this great story, uh, to to live as uh, holy people. Um, Quickly to note some some characteristics of that holy life. Um, We'll think through more of these throughout these classes. Some of the basic brushstrokes here. The holy life is lived in creation and history. It's not an ethereal escape, as we've said. Uh, It is not an escape from that which is material and historical and ordinary. Um, The holy life applies all of God's words to everywhere that it is relevant so that you you live the ordinary life that you've been given in a a holy way, in a way that pleases God, according to to the station he's given you in life, according to the situation he's given you, the gifts, the talents, the things he's put on your plate. Um, It is not to escape those, but to do those well. Um, the holy life is the life that is directed by the principles of the throne room of the universe uh, by by the principles of heaven by the one who sits on the throne of heaven and we pray don't we your will be done uh, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Uh, so that's what we that's what the holy life is the seeking of the, the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven and we, we know that there is the fullness of that uh, in the end. Um, 
The holy life touches all aspects of human existence. There's no part of life that Christ uh, does not claim for his own. There's no place, no time that Christ does not claim for his own. Um, the holy life is revealed to us chiefly in every part of Scripture. Um, all of it culminating in the revelation of Jesus Christ is a revelation of God's holy character. All of it is breathed out by God, useful for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And the holy life, uh, and we also acknowledge that through the holy lives of the people of God, this, this is one of God's chief means um, to show his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven and his means of sowing uh, the seeds of a great harvest of glory the day of resurrection um, so uh, the ordinary life lived in a righteous way is not insignificant God has promised to use this for great glory on the day of resurrection mm-hmm. and, and often blesses with the sight of a glimpse of that even in the midst of history as we wait for that great day of resurrection So that's what we've been created for, created to worship God with all of our lives in the beauty of holiness. And that's what we've been recreated for as well. Right, there's a lot of details there. We will come back to a lot of these at later points in these lessons. Um, Again, if these raise questions, uh, we might have a little bit of time at the end here, but you can also send me a message and we can talk about them further. Um, Just a final thing to note. we live in a very ugly age. Um, pragmatism is favoured, utility is prized, beauty is generally despised, or seen as entirely subjective. But we all still long for beauty, true beauty, as the world around us does. And, and here's a really neglected truth. What is holy is also what is beautiful. What is good is what is beautiful. And, and hope, one of my hopes throughout this, uh, this course is that we'll see that. We'll see that the holy life lived according to God's standards, it's not spare and miserable. It's not cold and spartan um, and dead. It's not ugly. It's not self-flagellating. It's not filled with false guilt, but only true guilt leading to repentance and life. Um, and that we'll see it's beautiful in myriad ways, that it's, it's bracing as a sea breeze on a high cliff, that it's, it's richly rooted in eternal things, that the holy life is beautiful in its fruitfulness, it's fruitful to a hundredfold, and that it shines with the light of the word of God, which is a lamp unto our path. Um, so that's what I hope we'll see, that holiness is not just good, but it is actually beautiful as well.